Bookworm Games, Episode 26, To Tenda Village, Part 2, in which we'll traverse the library and Lumine Hall. Welcome back, one and all. This is Wesley Schantz. A week or two maybe in the making, but the discombobulated two-part episode rattles on. In the meantime, I got married, so let's start there. This is Judge William, his reflections on marriage and stages on Life's Way by Soren Kierkegaard, pages 109 to 110. I return to what I said before, that resolution is a person's ideality. I shall now attempt to develop how the resolution most formative of the individuality must be constituted, and I rejoice in thinking that marriage is precisely so constituted, which, as stated, I assume for the time being to be a synthesis of falling in love and resolution. There is a phantom that frequently prowls around when the making of a resolution is at stake. It is probability. A spineless fellow, a dabbler, a Jewish peddler, with whom no freeborn soul becomes involved, a good-for-nothing fellow who ought to be jailed instead of quacks, male and female, since he tricks people out of what is more than money and more valuable than money. Anyone who, with regard to resolution, comes no further, never comes any further, than to decide on the basis of probability, is lost for ideality, whatever he may become. If a person does not encounter God in the resolution, if he has never made a resolution in which he has a transaction with God, he might just as well have never lived. But God always does business on growth, wholesale, and probability is a security that is not registered in heaven. Thus it is so very important that there be an element in the resolution that impresses officious probability and renders it speechless. For about a year since I proposed, I've been reading through the works of the Danish Ur-Existentialist, mostly just before going to bed. His writing represents the pinnacle of complexity, two-edged in all ways. His obsessions with faith and love do a remarkable job of putting things in perspective. Reading Kierkegaard falling asleep, I am convinced has indeed been a very thorough preparation for marriage. He remarks here on the gulf between probability and absolutes, and so I thought this passage connected nicely with that topic which was raised last time with respect to the odds against finding a sword of kings, or with Applekid's calculation of a 7% chance that you would rescue him and the others kidnapped by the starmen in Stonehenge. Now, after the fact, with all the tiny, countless chances that have led to this moment, we can speak of that vanishingly small likelihood of our own existence and all there is to be grateful for, and laugh about it, wondering and marveling at it. We'll come back to this before the end, to the role of the apple of enlightenment, prophecy and providence, and how to reconcile all of that with chances and choices, improbability, or even impossibility. And yet what looks like the working out of some beneficent intention, or even inevitability, depending on your standpoint, all are essential elements of this good story, whose events, to hang together, 
require something like the suspension of disbelief or an emotional investment in a secondary world to take Coleridge and Tolkien's formulations, or to take Kierkegaard's here, the overlap of love and resolution, of possibility and actuality. Now, also apropos of probability, last time when we came across the Casey bat, courtesy of Master, what was it, Barf, uh, who used to be Master Belch, I really should have read this poem out as well. This is Casey at the Bat by Ernest Lawrence Thayer. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two, with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a pall-like silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to the hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought, if only Casey could but get a whack at that, we'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake, and the former was a hoodoo, and the latter was a cake. So upon that stricken multitude grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let dive a, drive a single, to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted, and men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second, and Flynn a hugging third. Then from five thousand throats and more there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dell, it pounded on the mountain and recoiled upon the flat, for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile at Casey's face. And when, responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat, no stranger in the crowd could doubt t'was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, Defiance flashed in Casey's eye, a sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone on the stand, and it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the dun sphere flew, but Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, Strike two. Fraud! cried the maddened thousands, and the echo answered, Fraud! But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere. And somewhere hearts are light. 
somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. So, listening to this poem, reciting lines from it in class, discussing it with the teacher, is one of the more distinct memories I retain from my elementary school lessons. It's almost the opposite end of the spectrum from Kierkegaard, perhaps in many ways, for it's an example of writing which requires little effort. It's wakeful as a joke, rather than soporific and dreamlike and convoluted, like the pseudonyms, psychological, poetical, philosophical ramblings. I never liked playing baseball. I couldn't stand watching it. Yet somehow, it always has fascinated me, the idea of it. Maybe if I'd lived in the heyday of radio, like Hemingway's old man, I would have been a fan. So for that baseball motif in Earthbound, which comes to the fore now and then, like here with the Casey bat, all that is probably outside my purview. But I'd love to hear people's thoughts about it. I know the first time I played Earthbound, I was tricked by the Casey bat. Though I should have known better if I'd recalled the poem. Probably, I was not realizing at the time that poetry, like philosophy, could actually mean something if you tried to live it out. Unless its lessons could be applied to life, saving you some whiffs, holding out the possibility of home runs. And then for more on, on improbability and stories, I refer you again to the Tolkien professor, his book, Exploring the Hobbit, his Mythgard discussions, uh, sections on Boethius, or the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for example. Or, just in passing here, you might want to check out Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. A fantastic send-up of this theme in Guards, Guards, for example. This comes from page 262 in my version here. And here we go. Uh, and how big is a dragon's vulnerables, roughly? Oh, it can be a tiny spot, said Carrot helpfully. I was sort of afraid of that, said Nobby. He wandered to the edge of the roof and pointed downwards. There's a pond just here, he said. They use it for cooling water in the stills. I reckon it's pretty deep. So after the sergeant has shot at the dragon, we can jump in it. What do you say? Oh, but we don't need to do that, said Carrot. Because the sergeant's lucky arrow would have hit the spot and the dragon will be dead. And so we won't have anything to worry about. Granted, granted, said Nobby hurriedly, looking at Colin's scowling face. But just in case, you know, if by a million to one chance he misses. I'm not saying he will, mark you. You just have to think of all eventualities. If, by incredible bad luck, he doesn't quite manage to hit the vulnerable dead on, then your dragon is going to lose his rag, right? And it's probably a good idea to not be here. It's a long shot, I know. Call me a worrywart if you like. That's all I'm saying. Sergeant Colin adjusted his armor haughtily. When you really need them the most, he said, million to one chances always crop up. Well-known fact. The sergeant is right, Nobby, said Carrot virtuously. You know that when there's just one chance which might just work, well, it works. Otherwise, there'd be no... He lowered his voice. I mean, stands to reason. If last desperate chances didn't work, there'd be no... Well, the gods wouldn't let it be any other way. They wouldn't. 
So the story isn't quite so easy to pin down. Anyway, back to Earthbound. It turns out once you rescue him, the Apple Kid has already returned the Overcoming Shyness book to the Onet Library. When you teleport there, the li librarian still tells you not to worry about returning the town map until the year 2001. The hockey mask wearing man of few words has been reading the Shyness book, but has since put it back on the shelf. He asks you, with his newfound confidence, about the mistakes you've been making while he's been on his own adventures. This is the same sprite, again, who in Happy Happy Village seems to have taken part in the kidnapping of Paula. Or perhaps, though they look the same, this is a different character, and he's just looking forward to chatting about the everyday life, which is revealed to be wonderful. In the Japanese Mother 2, according to Legends of Localization, they have him speaking English here, and referencing uh, perhaps a popular English textbook which suggests that learning a second language is a good way, perhaps the best way, of overcoming shyness, which certainly rings true for me. You can find out, uh, oh, you can find it, the Overcoming Shyness book, that is, on one of the bookshelves, where the cheerful library goers are still there, through all your journeyings, studying. Elsewhere, the text changes, and... For example, with the Tessie Watchers, we get another haiku. I waited for you. I'm glad to see you again. You're back, Sebastian. I just love making haiku, says the Tessie Watcher. And of course, back in Tenda Village, passing along the book takes immediate effect, with all the Tendas except the innkeeper ready with something new to tell you. The Tendas Inn is the same. You can begin there to repair the broken technology from Stonehenge, but not the odds and ends in the corner of the Tenda Cave. There's the shop, too, where you trade the Horn of Life, and thus making the connection to Saturn Village even stronger, since that's where you go to buy the item. You can trade seven horns in total for a Hall of Fame bat to replace your useless Casey bat. There's also talisman ribbons and bags of Dragonite there, and from the Elder, after he gives you the Tenda Kraut, you can speak to him again for a new reward. Your own shyness, too, is brought into play again as you're called on the phone one more time to confirm your own, that is, the player, uh, your name. And it isn't clear this time if it's Tony who's calling you again, or perhaps someone else, someone who's read his research and is checking his facts. But either way, it's another example of the game breaking its frame insistently. And there's another beautiful break here. Just like the one in Saturn Valley, the game invites you to a cup of tea. Now, it looks like you can't replay this one, so I'm just watching it on YouTube this time, but I'll read it out. Would you like some tea? Drink. Like a great tapestry, vertical and horizontal threads have met and become intertwined, creating a huge, beautiful image.
You may have cursed this never-ending journey. You have known injury and defeat, but you have struggled on to reach this place. Your inborn intelligence and courage have helped bring you here. You have believed in your friends, and as a group, you have supported each other. Have you ever stopped to consider how much your power has grown? Now you could fell enemies in Onet and Tucson with one blow. As you certainly know, you cannot turn back. Gigas, the arch-fiend of the universe, is growing frightened of you and your power. He is searching for ways to end your journey. From here, the challenge grows, and your adventure will take you beyond anything you ever imagined. You are drawing near to Gigas. Remember, when you are suffering hardships, your enemy is also struggling. By the way, do you know where Pokey went? When this cup of tea is finished, your adventure will continue. Your destiny pulls you in the right direction. Believe in yourself and press forward. Ness, Paula, Jeff, Pooh. I wish you luck. Attenda also lets you know she is a woman, in case you thought she was a man, and a strong Tenda by the stone in the back of the cave, will heave it aside and then be in awe of his own power, no longer encumbered by shyness. The tenda by the door smiles. The talkative tenda has an identity crisis now that everyone has come out of their shell. You hear about a talking rock deep in the cave, which lets you know what to look for next. Though it turns out that you get a glimpse of what it will look like Though the talking rock you find at once upon dropping down into the tunnel is not the one you're looking for. Lumine Hall hums with the sound effects of the start of the game, and it's nothing much to look at either. It turns out to be a short dungeon if you proceed straight through, and after having leveled against Starmen, it presents no great challenge, even if you get hopelessly lost exploring it. You'll find Pooh's headgear, the diadem of kings, as well as capsules boosting individual stats, luck, and IQ, and a speed-enhancing rabbit's foot. At the shiny spot, the guardian challenges you once more with those familiar words, you finally got here. This is the seventh location, but it's mine now. Take it from me if you dare. Dare, but be advised, the Electro Spectre does wear a psychic shield, so if you go in star storms and sigh rockin' blazing, you'll wind up on the wrong end of your own salvos. To inspect the art of this boss just briefly, 
these concentric circles behind his angular metallic form not only convey a sense of earth-shaking movement, but recall the model of electron shells, with all the uncertainty and the spooky action at a distance that quantum physics entails. The connotations of its name also suggest the photoelectric effect, as well as the spectrum of light shading into the invisible. So, the electrospecter embodies the dual nature of light as we understand it, wave and particle. Focusing attention on the mystery of light itself, rather than the dichotomy of light and darkness so easily to invoke, it guards an area where darkness and light are in mysterious harmony, expressed in their ability to project Ness's thoughts in words. Dropping down into the sanctuary spot itself, then, the spectacular namesake of Lumine Hall is revealed. Walking right to left, there is a shift in direction and a flattening out of the path. It's as if we were back in one of those early caves around Onet or Tucson, glittering now with a new perspective, the variation on what is old. Recall the tea-timed words of encouragement and wonder. Whatever did happen to Pokey? How much stronger are you, and how afraid is Gigas? If any of this is going through Ness's thoughts, uh, we don't hear about it. For part of this variation on the cave and the darkness and the light is the big wall with its blinking uh, colored lights like a light bright board, which gives way to legible text as you walk along, scrolling across Ness's head for us to read. It goes... I'm Ness. It's been a long road getting here. Soon I'll be... Soon I'll be... Soon I'll be... What will happen to us? What's happening? My thoughts are being written out on the wall. Or are they? We might recall... Geldegard Monatoli seeing cryptic words in Moonside, or Gigas himself seeing the writing on the wall with the prophecy of the Apple of Enlightenment about the path of light and the nightmare rock. That writing on the wall is a phrase that comes right out of the Bible story of Belshazzar and Daniel 5. The first two words there, I'll spare you the whole passage, the first two words are mene mene, Sounds kind of like Mani Mani. Anyway, in passing here, I'd also point out, I've read in a few places about uh, Itoi remarking that Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut was one of the game's main inspirations. And people specifically point to Lumine Hall as an example of this. But as I haven't read the book, I'll just point you toward the relevant article for now. It can be found at Earthbound Central if you search for Earthbound and Literary Inspirations, is the title of the article, from January 15th, 2010. Uh, and this is run, again, by Clyde Mandolin, the same uh, translator, localizer, who, who produced the Legends of Localizations. He writes, 
It's no secret that when Shigesato Itoi created the games in the Mother series, he used ideas inspired by all sorts of books, movies, music, and whatnot that he liked. I've listed a few of these inspirations before. I really should make a page that lists them all. But here's a look at two more. The other day, PK Coffee posted on the Starman.net forums asking about The Sirens of Titan and The Body, the short story Stand By Me was based on, and how they specifically inspired Itoi. Itoi has mentioned that he's been inspired by all these things. There was even an exhibit at the Mother 1 and 2 event that displayed a lot of the things that inspired him. There's an image here with the Stand By Me, E.T., uh, e. the Goonies, the Blues Brothers, with little captions that I can't read. Um, anyway, sadly, it goes on, he's never given specific examples. He usually just says, if you read it or watch it, you'll probably see the similarities. So last year, I picked up a few things that apparently inspired him, and you can definitely see the influence they had on the games. I don't have time to write a big, huge review similarity thing myself, but if you're a big Mother Earthbound fan, you should definitely check out some of this stuff out. Anyway, PK Coffee also posted a huge analysis of the Sirens of Titan and the body and how they relate to Earthbound, which I'll post here. First up, Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut. All of his books are pretty famous, and Itoi absolutely loves everything he's written. It's a pretty easy book to read, too. Even though it's technically science fiction, it's more like a light, easy-reading parody of the genre. You can find the book pretty cheap on eBay, Half.com, Amazon, or anywhere else, probably. I'm sure you can find it at your local library, too, so check it out if you can. Now for PK Coffee's analysis. Kurt Vonnegut, The Sirens of Titan, and Mother. Vonnegut's similarities to the Mother series are more obvious than King's. You might be thinking, how the hell is Stephen King similar to Earthbound? So we'll start with him. At first I didn't see how Vonnegut could be similar to the Mother series. Sure, there's aliens in M1 and M2, but the Mother series doesn't really take them seriously, you know? It's a caricature of aliens in fiction. They land on a copy of the Devil's Tower as it appears in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Their spaceships are cute, lil, and wear pink bows. And most of the time the enemies you encounter are goofy, possessed, inanimate objects or animals. The fact that aliens are behind the plot isn't really emphasized as much as you'd expect from seeing, say, the opening of M2, or the foresight level of Super Smash Bros. Melee. But Bonnegut doesn't really take his aliens seriously, either. Take his most famous alien race, the Trephamadorians, as they appear in Slaughterhouse. They're described as plungers with hands on top of them, and a single eye in the palm of the hand. They're goofy, silly, but also wise, beyond human understanding. They almost give the same impression as Mr. Saturn's do even if they can speak English perfectly normal. The robotic Trafamadorian has a similar level of goofiness and lovability. Honestly, I don't think of Vonnegut as sci-fi. I think of Vonnegut as a cartoony caricature of sci-fi through which he conveys philosophical views, like the Mother series. Anyways, onto the Sirens of Tight. The de facto antagonist is Winston Niles Rumford, an old money aristocrat turned space traveler. After scientists discovered a crazy quantum space-time warp thing called a chronosynclastic infundibulum in between Earth and Mars, everyone became too afraid to travel into space. To promote space travel, Rumford, with his dog Kazak, piloted a spaceship straight to the chronosynclastic infundibulum and disappeared. They had become a wave phenomena, stretching from the sun to Betelgeuse. Essentially, he and his dog are a spiral-shaped broadcast, spiraling out from the sun. Whenever a planet's orbit intersects the spiral, Rumford and Kazak materialize on it. They also experience all time simultaneously. So the second after Rumford went into Kronos and Clastic Infundibulum, he experienced everything from that moment to, well, read the book. 
His perception of time would prefigure Billy Pilgrims in Slaughterhouse, John, Dr. Manhattan, Ostermans and Watchmen, Paul, Muad'Dib and Atreides and Dune, and Desmond Humes and Lost, and probably others. Dr. Manhattan is the closest example, though. Rumford can tell people what will happen in the future. Okay, so you can read the rest of that if you like, or if, like me, you might want to go ahead and read Sirens of Titan. Uh, that's on my list now uh, of books to read. Anyway, as you might have guessed, given what we saw back at Pink Cloud, the vision this time for the soundstone is of Ness's father holding him. And the way these visions are minimally narrated rather than made visual actually highlights the distance rather than the connection between you playing the game and Ness, the character himself. You never see his father, of course. And in Ness's case, he never speaks, and whose thoughts we've just had our first glimpse of in words, thanks to the writing on the wall. His father is seen from where? Through his own eyes? Or in the sort of vision from outside which we, playing the game, are given? All this is just to reflect a bit on the power of stories and games to bridge first and third person views, nudging us out of solipsism, yet never quite delivering a complete understanding, which would be arrogant indeed to suppose we had grasped. As for dreams, for their part, those are soon to follow in Magicant, just one sanctuary location away. And as we explored, a brief shift in perspective here will get a much more overt shift in scale with the Lost Underground next time. Make sure you have your smelly tender kraut with you. Till then, take care.